Hello folks, welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Firstly, this podcast, my website and my regular newsletters all focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance as I try to interpret the science and translate it into easy to understand lessons. So if you enjoy the podcast, you might like to know that I've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth, exclusive content and programs so you can take your performances to the next level. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of this episode. Talking of interpreting science, my guest today is Dr. Kerry McGauley. Kerry spends a lot of time researching, training and nutrition interventions for elite athletes. Most of them are endurance winter sports athletes based in Sweden, where she's based at the mid Sweden University. What you'll find from the podcast though is that Kerry's also really good at translating this data into usable guidelines, not just for elite athletes, but folks like you and me. And her work has covered training altitude, pacing strategies, block periodization, and some female specific interventions around monthly cycle. So buckle up because it's another really insightful podcast. And here's Kerry. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kerry Magoli. Thanks for having me. It feels like it's becoming a regular occurrence, this, because you did a presentation for us at British Triathlon a couple of weeks ago, and uh, now here we are again. Uh, sandwiched, by the way, in between with a, uh, a a little small race you did in Ibiza, which went quite well, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It went better than expected. And for those at Kerry, it seems like she's going to be too shy to let you know. So I'll <laughs> I'll say she uh, she's the world half well, we can't call it half long, Ironman, long distance. Can we? Long distance long, it is long long distance champion in her age group. She can declare yeah. that if she wants to. Thank you. Yeah, I thought you were going to introduce me as Doctor World Champion Kerry McGawley. <laughs> <I'm only joking. laughs> maxing oh, out on the titles for a while yeah yeah we haven't got enough space on the on the title bar on the uh <laughs> on the podcast host uh, it, so was Kerry- actually, it was actually an awesome event it was really good really good yeah mm. yeah it was uh also the pto um, yeah, which was amazing there, to they? see. Yeah, and yeah, because obviously I saw the the guys finish, but just to see like Christian, Jan, and Alistair, I think that was the highlight. Like, obviously, a couple of places between each of them, but those three, it was really cool to see. Mm. So the reason we've invited you to be a guest, Kerry, is because primarily you do a lot of research around um, topics and subjects that triathletes would be interested in, and. Um, but you're also really good, as we found out on the British Triathlon Workshop recently. What you do really well is you're able to translate that information that, that comes out of your research into real-world practical advice that people can use, and not just elite athletes, age group athletes who are the majority of our listeners. So I'm really going to ask you to uh, sort of highlight some of the research that you've done, some of the areas, and then we're going to dig into those a little bit more. And if we can, summarise right at the end with some key points that, that you might um, guide age groupers towards when they're looking at research and thinking about their own training and racing. So t- tell me about some of the key bits of research that you've done um, in the last few years that have been published, because I know there's a lot. Uh, yeah, there is a lot, actually. I think uh, I'm trying to get in my professor application, so I think I'm up around yeah 50 or so publications, and lots of those are in recent years. But I've I work, I'm employed by a Swedish university, Mid-Sweden University, and I work at the Swedish Winter Sports Research Centre. 
And I specifically work quite a lot with the uh, Swedish cross-country ski and biathlon teams. Um, and I'm employed as a researcher, um, but because lots of my research is together with those teams, it is very applied and it's quite unique, really. And I guess it's quite niche. Um, well, firstly, the fact that I work with those particular athletes is quite unique and niche because there's not millions of them, certainly not in the UK where I come from. But um, I've kind of made a career of doing very applied research with high performance endurance athletes. And and that's usually it's very difficult to kind of get your hands on those sort of cohorts as participants for studies. So I tend not to do highly mechanistic studies these days. Um, I have done studies with lots of kind of muscle biopsies and biochemistry and so on. But that's not the first thing that that your Olympic teams want to be doing is cutting bits of muscle out their legs. So I guess my research profile has evolved quite a lot to become very applied. And that means that the questions are often driven by the sport themselves. So I'll have coaches come to me saying that they want to kind of look more into this as a concept and can I help them to answer these questions. So in terms of your question, like a lot of my studies have been, like I say, on those kind of athletes, on those kind of teams, um, and really quite broad. So I started off as an exercise physiologist, but now I would say that I'm really a like a sports performance scientist. So they might be training studies, looking at training interventions. They might be nutritional kind of studies, looking at supplementation or carbohydrate ingestion. Um, we do lots of performance-oriented um, studies. So we might be looking at analyzing pacing strategies, for example, over a course or a different type of race profile race course profile mm -hmm. um and then yeah recently we've done kind of altitude stu altitude studies as well i had one of my phd students just finished up looking at kind of monitoring the health and performance within the cross-country ski and biathlon teams and there we looked at kind of illness incidence rates but we also went up to altitude with them for a couple of months in font Rameau. Um, prior to one of the Olympic Games that they were preparing for. So it really depends on what the coaches and teams are mm -hmm. after. And I can be very broad um, and answer kind of most types of questions. And then I just collaborate with other experts, bring in other experts who can help like strengthen the research team. I know that there's a lot of age group triathletes like to look at what the research says and then say, right, I'm going to use this type of training or I want to use this intervention because the research says that that's really good. Um, but one of the things I'd like you to explain is why that can be misleading at times to see the research and then apply it to yourself and what might be a better strategy for people to do. And if you could give some specific examples, that would be great. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess a classic one that I think about quite a lot, because obviously, you know, you mentioned that I'm racing as well. So and I coach myself um, and I've got a busy job. So I think one of the, you know, there's a lot of chat and I know you've had Stephen Siler on quite a few times um, mm -hmm. and he talks quite a lot about, you know, polarized training. Um, and so I guess it's this kind of idea of <laughs> there's a lot of chat around polarized or threshold type training. But, you know, that aside, because somebody like, um, Stephen Siler also understands sport very well and can discuss all around that and that, you mm -hmm. know, it's horses for courses. Um, but but it's that kind of catching on to quite extreme ideas and trying to implement extreme ideas that I think is not very healthy for certainly age groupers who haven't got the capacity to 
rest as much as they need to do between sessions or they might need to do if they're following kind of a pro lifestyle type training setup um and then the other thing is obviously total training volume um i don't think there's many people with a job that can be training 25 hours upwards as kind of any pro triathlete typically is doing um age comes into it as well like lots of us are older than you know you would be at peak performance age as a lot of the elites are and then i think the fourth so so there's kind of different strands to this but like the fourth thing that comes to mind is there's a reason that elites are elite and age groupers are age groupers and that often comes to to talent and tolerance as well like Mm -hmm because lots of us have been in the game for a long time and we just never made it to be elite and that might be you know life choices that we chose a career or we chose to go down the pub or we chose to you know to focus on other things um but it quite probably is also something to do with the fact that you know only a very few people are talented enough enough to be pro and elite athletes (laughs) Mm. um yeah so so that's a lot of you you know your research is on as you said, elite athletes, but a lot of the research that's out there is also on college age students, isn't it? That have been roped in because that's often, if you're doing the research within a university, I guess that's an easy cohort of people to get to come in. And if there's a little bit of money available for participating in there, students are always wanting a bit more extra cash. And so the results from those studies can also be misleading. Yeah. And I would say that the main problem with any training study um, because training studies are very difficult to do, and especially good training studies are especially difficult to do. But the problem with most training studies is that they're very short term. They're very short term interventions. You know, they might be four weeks, six weeks. They might be 12 weeks if you're lucky. Um, the very odd training study might be half a year or a year, but that's really um, uncommon. So what you actually get is a tiny, tiny snippet of doing one thing once in a group of people that are not very well adapted to that thing um and obviously you're going to see quite severe adaptations if you know that set of people haven't done had that stimuli um put onto them beforehand but the problem you've got with certainly with triathletes is we typically train a lot whoever we are and whatever level we're at we we Mm. like to train and it's much more difficult to have an impact so what happens if you take an athlete that you know, is very well trained and you try and kind of put some sort of training stimulus onto them, it's very, it's it's much more difficult to have an impact. But the other thing is that, you know, you can do something once and then you repeat it later on and that's not the same person anymore. That person has already adapted once mm. or they've kind of done a whole year's worth of training. You know, so there's kind of case studies on on high-level athletes, for example, pro pro athletes, where you can look at, like there's a study with kayakers for example that looks at them for like one year intervention where they did a kind of a type of training like a classic training and then they did a kind of more periodized block periodized intense training the following year but the problem is is that those two years um, were very different years for those athletes with very different races they're different kind of people in the second year because they've had that year behind them already of that particular study so there's there's just so many limitations to these studies mm. and it's why i just think that you know i'm not giving or i'm being quite negative here in a way that i'm not giving people solutions but that's where 
like really I just think that people don't value enough really well-educated coaches scientists people that understand all this because someone like you I know you kind of dedicate your life to just like improving your toolbox all the time like educating yourself and trying to translate all of that information and knowledge and that you know new stuff's coming all the time into real world scenarios with individuals that have got their own kind of limitations Mm. and their own schedules and that's the only way that you can do these that you can't you can't just catch on to a new study and start to implement it and then catch on to another new thing and implement it whatever it might be um yeah um because nothing is going to be like a game changer in that way Mm. and that's where i think the value of expertise of human expertise is really difficult to replace Um, but it's also really difficult to kind of accrue and accumulate that level of knowledge where you can actually help all different types of people in all different types of scenarios. I remember standing, uh, you might have been there actually at the Endurance Coaching Summit when Stephen Seiler presented and he got these three graphs on and he said, right, this is this is athlete one. So athlete one does a hit session twice a week in the morning. Athlete two does three hit sessions um, with th- a day in between. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And this one here does three hit sessions, but they do them on consecutive days. Right, so... Um, who thinks that who thinks that method A is the best one? And coaches are looking around, and a few put their hands up. And then he said, "Right, what about method B?" And a few more people put their hands up. And um, method C, yeah. And there's a few more people hands up. Right? Does anybody think none of them work? A few hands go up. Anybody think they all work? A few hands go up. He said, "Well, do you know? I honestly don't know. If you can tell me, that would be great." He said, "Because each of these people." has a different age, a different background, a different response to training. The truth is, for for the person doing them, they probably all work to some point. And they probably all stop working at a certain point because everybody plateaus and then you have to change. You maybe have to look at, uh, you know, what you've been doing, reflect on your training methods and everything else, and then then try something else. And his opinion there was that actually N equals one is also a valid research method, like testing stuff out on yourself and finding what works. Um, because because most most people that we're talking about, their lives are fluid, aren't they? They're changing. They get promoted. They move. They they move to a different part of the country. They work different hours. You know, they have pe- busy periods of work and um, less busy periods of work, which enable them to rest more. Um, and so it's they, they don't just have training and resting to to focus on. Yeah, and that's a that's a really interesting example that you took up there with with what Stephen said because the the other thing about it you know his kind of rhetorical question is if if anyone can tell me you know please do the fact is and this is such a challenge as a scientist the fact is is that there's no way of ever knowing and there's no way of ever testing Mm. because you can't clone a person and run them through in parallel um three different types of intervention or three different types of protocol or study design and as soon as you intervene with any one of those kind of protocols that he kind of came up with there just as an example Mm. um and then you kind of do a crossover design and you test the next one and you test the next one it was like i was saying before well the the previous one that you did has already had an impact and affected that person so they're not the same person as they were Mm -hmm. at the start and i mean that's where like we did quite a large scale like block training periodization study um when i was a postdoc when i first started in sweden and that's why in scientific studies, you know, ideally you do kind of a crossover design where you've mm-hmm. got half of the participants doing one thing, half doing another thing, and a kind of a, a washout period or a detraining period and then cross them over and do the other one. 
but that's extremely difficult to do. And that doesn't, you know, you're still kind of putting two different groups of people. So you've got N equals 12 times two. Well, those 12 people in one group are not the same 12 people as in the other group. And you do as best you can to match them. But, mm-hmm. you know, any individual is different and is going to adapt differently and has got a different kind of physiological makeup, a psychological makeup. And I think that's where, for me, like to be a good coach, and I don't know, like, I mean, this is potentially a bit controversial because I know that lots of coaches don't have like a sports science background or don't have a great like strength in physiology. But for me, if if you can't understand really quite intricately physiology, um, then I don't know how you can try out and kind of use these different tools appropriately. Mm-hmm. And it's not just physiology. It's also you need to obviously understand the psychology of any specific individual. You also have to see what floats their boat, what motivates them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've got friends, I'm a certain type of athlete and I crave competition and I crave things being really hard. And, and I, you know, that drives me. Whereas I've got other people that I coach or that train with me, and I have to kind of coax them in a different way to not be anxious about the type of sessions that I might set, for example. You know, there's all different types of challenges, basically. And that's where mm-hmm. a group environment, a group training environment is just crucial, I think, because everyone kind of has their role. And, you know, you develop these friendships like that's really important to me, the people that I train with. But I move around quite a lot and it's quite difficult to find those people, like find your people that you know spark you motivate you that mm. you motivate them and it might creates like a very inspiring kind of training group well it was really interesting that you've brought in the psychology bit there because i think that's often uh missed out when um when people are thinking about their own training you know now we've been talking to people about biopsychosocial so what's you know if you're a coach never the, the biology is the bit that we all focus on you know the metabolism the response the, you know the responses to different types of training they're sort of like um the, the genetics the body type um we sometimes think about what's going on in people's head we very rarely think about the environment somebody's in you know if somebody's living in an environment where they can't get good food for instance like a food desert if somebody's living in an environment where it's not safe to run outside at night or or, or it's not easy to you know i always i always think it's such a challenge for long distance athletes that are living in a city particularly if you want to cycle to to find places where it's it's um interesting and motivating to to ride your bike rather around the park for 50 laps um or if you like you just said there if you live in an area where accessing swimming pools or you can go to a swimming pool but the swimming pool isn't set up for people who want to go up and down doing laps at high speed it's set up for people to swim up and down keeping the head above water and chatting and the two there's often a bit of conflict between those so you know and so that we forget about that whole environment but that whole environment can enthuse somebody and give them energy and motivation to train or it can get them down um, so it doesn't matter how good how good a program you're writing for them or how much this program is related to the amazing research you've done if that person just can't get access to great facilities. Yeah, and I think that part of it is key to sort of like lifelong participation. Like I would say, I'm kind of coming up to 45 now, and I've been in, I've been doing triathlon for maybe 20, 25 years. But you know, before that, I was a soccer player. I've done. So I, I can't. I'm not getting tired of this. Um, and I've been doing it for a long time. And I kind of see other individuals, they mm-hmm. come and go. They'll kind of enter a big major Ironman and it will be a big 
major one or two year project and then they kind of go off the radar and you don't see them anymore and that's where like and lots of those people I see train on their own and they're very you know they've kind of bought fully into the program they've got an online coach sitting somewhere in America or whatever and that they're just full on into it and they're you know that whether they're just trying to finish it or whether they're trying to make a good get, mm. get a good time is neither here nor there but but to me like I it, it's really important for me that this is my social life as well mm. um and it's interesting because I've lived in quite a lot of different countries and I currently live down in Brighton it's very busy down here uh there's quite a lot of traffic the the the, the roads are horrific in terms of potholes and stuff but I, I never sit on a turbo. I don't sit on a turbo ever. I don't do any indoor cycling. Um, and, you know, the weather's horrific. It's been pouring with rain all winter. But I'll just get out there because I'll go on a Saturday ride with my club mates. And that's kind mm. of not sitting at my computer on my own writing papers. That's my kind of social time. Um, but I lived up in Sweden where there's huge wide roads, amazing tarmac, like no traffic you can just sit in the time trial position for literally days on end without meeting a car or a person. Um, <laughs> and they're very different environments. Mm. Um, and you can prepare yourself for, for races and for racing very well in both of those environments, despite the, the fact that they're completely like extremely mm. different, just as you can by sitting on a turbo as well. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that there's so much choice and mm. that's where you can work those choices into your personality because some people love their kind of man or woman cave um, and being down there and sticking on like YouTube stuff or races, mm. you know, on their screen. I just don't go in for that. Um, but I, I can see all that. But it's it's another thing to say you must be on a turbo or if you're not, on, you know, like there's a lot of people that think that they can't be a good athlete unless they spend a hell of a mm. lot of time on a turbo trainer. Mm -hmm which I just don't buy at all. But by the same token, I think you can be a good athlete just by sitting on the turbo. I think there's a bit of a concern like descending in bad weather in, in races. But, but do you know what I mean? So I just think mm. this. everyone takes these – well, not everyone. That was, a, that was one myself. Lots of people kind of think that you have to take an extreme stance. Um, and I think for all, in almost all situations that – the less less extreme you know there's a balance to be made at all times that what what you said there about you can't be a good triathlete unless you spend time on a turbo i wish somebody had told that to alistair brownie before he won in london because i don't think alistair is i think he's allergic to being on a turbo trainer i, I know mm. he spent a lot of time on zwift during lockdown but he also liked to spend a lot of time out on his gravel bike um you know and they were riding all weathers like literally all weathers he's got it's got to be horrendous the unsafe weather for for that group in Leeds to ride indoors. Um, but let's, I'm just writing down some of the stuff you said here about having a social circle, how important that is. I had a lady called Anna Hemmings on, who was a, an Olympic kayak and world champion kayaker, and she actually um, was diagnosed with um, chronic fatigue. And a lot of that was to do with training on her own and just not having any enjoyment because she didn't have the group that she used to train with. Um, and so that was part of her recovery was to train with a group. Um, like you say, that's not the same for everybody, but I do think certainly if, if, if you, if you want to still be doing something 20 years time, you know, if you love cycling, um, if you really enjoy swimming, there's got to be something that keeps you in it more than just training for a race. And you saw, we saw a lot of people, didn't we, during COVID who just gave up on those things 
um, because there was no races to train for. And that, to me, um, just most of the best athletes that I've come across in, in numerous different sports enjoy the process and the mastery of that skill that they have in their particular sport, whether it's playing cricket, whether it's, you know, playing rugby or whether it's triathlon, they enjoy the process and the mastery and the practicing and the competition is just an opportunity for them to express all of that um, in a performance setting. Yeah, I completely agree. Like I'm mega competitive and I love competitions, but it, it, it's definitely all about the process and the the lifestyle and the day-to-day living and it's quite funny, like some of the things I've, I just kind of said when you were talking, I was reflecting as well on on the kind of social aspect of it. Um, if people down here, especially the people in my club, kind of listened to this, maybe they do, I don't know. <laughs> they would kind of think she's the most antisocial, unsociable person in the club. What's she on about? So what? I'm, like there's kind of a, a limit and a level. And and what I mean by that is that I don't go to all the club set. You know, my training program doesn't revolve around the club and the club sessions. Mm-hmm. And that's because the club and the club sessions are very much, for, in my opinion, based around kind of participation and getting the masses involved. And they do a great job on that. And the pools fill up and, um, you know, there's sea swimming going on and we've got the velodrome and that, and I'll, I'll tag into those when it suits me. Like I'm setting my plan. Uh, I know when I kind of need some company and I know when I need to do what I need to do. The thing, I don't swim with them because they swim at 8 or 9 p.m. on Tuesdays mm. and Thursdays. And that's just too late for me. That mm-hmm. puts out my whole week. It puts out my next day's training. So for me, like the, the, the content of my training plan comes first. What do I need to do? And then kind of fitting that around, like you said, the the, the biopsychosocial, I make sure that all of those three parts are in my training plan all the time because I know that all three of those components are really important. But it's also why as a triathlete, like I joy, I always join the, the cycling club wherever I live because the cycling club typically are better cyclists than the triathletes. And they're a little bit more versatile. <laughs> they go out more often. So you've just got, I have basically a kind of smorgasbord to choose from. Like the bike club will do their Saturday ride, their Sunday ride, their midweek ride. And, you know, if I'm kind of busy with, uh, you know, a bit of a life or work or going to see family or or some other things going on, I can kind of pick a different session. But And I'll join a running club as well. Um, and depending on where I am, I might join a swimming club. But do you know what I mean? I, like, I just think that that, that for me works really well and is really important. And it sort of depends about the type and the quality of, of, of your triathlon club. And I'm not, I'm not to say my triathlon club hasn't got quality. I'm just saying it sort of depends on Mm. if you've got kind of a a meeting point and a melting point for very good athletes within the triathlon club. Great. But ours is probably a little bit more varied in, in the, the level of athlete. I'm just thinking about a guest that I had on the show. I'm not sure if you know of him or have, have actually come across him. He does a lot of research into brain injuries in infants in in Seattle. Um, his guy's his guy's name is Tom, Doctor Tommy Wood. He's an English bloke, but he does a lot of stuff with Greg Bennett and some of Greg Bennett's training group. And um, he's been on a lot of podcasts, including mine. And one of the things that I've heard him say many times is. When when somebody will like, for instance, I'm not a great believer that keto is a particularly good diet for somebody doing long distance triathlon. Um, but as he would say, if I meet somebody who says, "Well, that's been working for me for a long time now, and it's sustainable," 
and I'm perfectly happy. How, how can you argue with that? Even if all the evidence, the research evidence and everything else, and the, the, you know what the experts say, say keto is no good for endurance athletes. If if that person truly is sticking to a, a proper keto diet and it's working for them and has been doing so for a long time, why would you argue? And I think that's you know coming circling back to some of the things you've been talking about. The research could say one thing, but if an individual says actually I, I do this, I I only train in zone two and I'm winning my age group at Ironman. Well, you know, it's no good me saying, well, you need to do some HIIT training then because if they're already winning their age group, why would you change from a a formula that's working? Equally, if somebody says, I've only got six hours a week to train, I want to do Ironman and all my training is HIIT and I'm actually doing quite well, then again, you know, why why would you argue with that? Um, So what what I'd like to do, Kerry, is take take you back to some of your research um, and, and ask you some questions about this, about what the research says, and then how you would apply that to the individuals who are listening to this and what they might take out of that. So you, you talked about um you talked about pacing, you talked about block periodization. Um are you are you a fan of polarized training? Do you think that's actually a really good approach, or do you think it's a bit more nuanced than that? I definitely think it's more nuanced. Um and it's definitely like you've got to weigh that into training volume I think as well how much training volume you want to do or how much training volume you sort of can do I think is affected by that but also like I always start with the demands of the event Um, and that's what I do in any kind of research study that I'm planning or any group of athletes I'm working with whatever it is and I think it's the same for triathlon like if you look at a sprint triathlete versus an Ironman triathlete I mean the demands are quite different so the training should be quite different really um and for me probably my favorite distance myself is like half ironman for example uh, a lot of that is really kind of threshold work so like i kind of make sure that i've got training specific to the demands of the event in in my program and i would with with anybody that we're working with as well um i can understand like the, the polarized idea a lot of that has stemmed from high level athletes and a lot of the Norwegian papers, for example, the Tennyson papers, um, has reported like the training um, distribution and the training characteristics of very high-level cross-country skiers, for example. Now, cross-country skiers can train a lot similar to the way that triathletes and cyclists can because it's kind of a, a non-impact sport in the same way mm-hmm. that running is. Plus, they have lots of different techniques that they need to train. So they need to train classic. They need to train diagonal. Uh, uh skate um and then within classic and space skate there's lots of different uh sub techniques they train over lots of different terrain so they need lots of skills in terms of climbing flat and descending um and then they use cross training quite a lot and they need to do a lot of gym training so if you're if you're kind of an athlete that's in a sport that's that's got lots of different demands technical and physical um, and your professional, well, your training volume is going to be huge, which means just by nature, a lot of mm-hmm. it's going to be at low intensities, as we kind of talk about. Mm-hmm. Some of it's going to be at high intensities. But like you said earlier, like if you're an age grouper who's got six hours a week to prepare for an Ironman, you can't afford to have five and a half of those hours probably being at very low intensity, which would kind of be your percentages, your proportional distribution. I asked Stephen Siler this very specific question, and he was still adamant that um, a polarised approach would work for people who have low volume. My, my only concern is that um, if somebody has only got 
six hours. And I said, I, I use the, the word only in, in inverted commas, really, because in any other sport like cycling or running, if you're doing six hours of training a week, you're actually doing quite a lot, wouldn't you? But as a triathlete, um, it seems like quite a low volume. Um, is that those folks would probably have a lot of other stuff going on in their lives. So they've got stress coming in from other areas. And if they do too much, too much training in a threshold zone, creating too much oxidative stress, that could add to all the other stress and still push them over the uh, over the edge, couldn't it? Uh, yeah, definitely. And that's what, yeah, you definitely have to balance in all of the other stressors and, you know, how much sleep is available to you in that kind of period of your life and whether you're traveling a lot and all those other things. Um, but you also have to think, like, what's kind of enjoyable for that person? What do they want to be doing? But um, what what's going to prepare them for that event? So like for a 10k runner um you're going to have different kind of demands i mean i don't think i don't think there's i don't think there's very good evidence for any of these models being Mm -hmm. better than any of the other and that's what Mm. it always comes back down to um because you hear these different anecdotes and i've heard anecdotes from from friends as well who's you know make the point that you know which I think you alluded to as well, just as an example before, that you can get away with doing a lot of like low intensity training and still perform well over high intensity events. But I don't think that would be the case for everybody at every point in their life either. So, and it's where you kind of have this evolution of what's good for any particular individual because you tend to try stuff um, and then perform and see how you're recovering and you've got some idea of whether your performance is kind of going up or down. Um, mm. But the other thing with low intensity exercise is that not very much happens around the actual session itself in terms of the afterwards. So, I mean, you'll go out and you'll do that session, you'll have some kind of adaptation from that session itself, but the, high, the, the you know the higher and higher the intensity goes, the more sort of runoff effect you're going to have from that session if you know what I mean in terms of being threshold or high intensity so I mean I'm kind of, I don't think I've heard that conversation with with Stephen but what's his rationale or argument what's it how's he convincing people of that being an actual true fact rather I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible mm. I'm just saying why is it better than doing a third low intensity a third threshold mm. let's say you've got six hours two hours two hours two i mean it, 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 yeah do you know mm. what i mean and it but just saying that i mean high intensity it's always limited because it's always an interval and then there's lots of recovery or there's lots mm. of downtime so i think i don't i'm not even sure that we're arguing kind of different things a lot of the time because the body yeah. can't actually take more so it's mm. more about how much are you stretching yourself to the limits of what you can manage versus mm. how much are you doing easy training and then some sporadic high intensity bouts. Well, no, I'm I'm with you. I I can't remember what his rationale was. I think part of it might have been you know somebody just got so much on in their life and could only allocate that amount of training time needs to be careful of those other stresses and how much how much impact those have on recovery. Um, I think he he was also keen to point out that you know triathlon is is mostly an aerobic sport and i know you still work in the aerobic metabolism even at high intensity um but if it's fat burning then you can get away with that low intensity stuff if you're doing i guess if you're doing a short bike ride for instance of an hour you could probably ride at 70 to 75 percent and still be under your aerobic threshold but if you're going out for four or five hours 70 to 75 percent it'd actually be quite a quite an exhausting session for most people 
Um, so again, it, it will depend on the individual. Um, and, and, you know, my own experience is that you'd probably want a range of those. You'd probably want some longer, steadier stuff. Um, and you probably want some high intensity stuff. Um, and that's where a coach comes in. He's helping somebody to identify, well, where are they going to, where are they going to spend their money best to get the best rate of return? But I, I also have a I also have a little giggle when people say I'm doing 80-20, so 20% of my training is high intensity. I'm doing 10 hours a week. Well, 10 hours a week means you know that's 600 minutes. So what you're telling me is 120 minutes of your week. Well, actually, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah two, two hours. Yeah, 120. You're spending 120 minutes doing high intensity work. So you're up around your threshold. That, that's, I'm not sure that most that's physically possible for most. Um, recreational athletes or even elites that's an awful lot of time isn't it you know if if you think that a vo2 max session to, to get stimulus for most people's probably you can you can do 20 minutes of um time at the, uh, around your vo2 max well that's six sessions like that you could do for 30 to 40 minutes of time at threshold well that's still four sessions like that i just i just don't think most people would would be able to physically cope with that or recover yeah, and I think it's where the problem of definitions has come in because, you know, polarised training used to be used to be talking about kind of a zone one versus a zone five and you've mm-hmm. got zones two, three and four in the middle that you're kind of excluding. But now mm-hmm. it's become a kind of zone one and two mm-hmm. as a clump and then zone three, four and five is another clump and they meet in the middle and there's actually no polarisation at all. It's yeah. just kind of quite a lot of low intensity and a, and, and some high intensity so I think that's like, you know, when people say that, I don't even think they know how to measure it. No. I don't think they know how to record or report it. Um, and it, it's just kind of a jumping on a bandwagon idea. And it like someone like, you know, that in my field, there's kind of well-known professors or well-known researchers. And it's in almost all cases, it's because they've taken some sort of a stance some sort of an kind of semi-extreme mm. stance or you know really pushing which i think is the opposite of being a scientist because we're supposed to be open-minded um and we're supposed to kind of go in with a, a hypothesis and test it so i mean i don't have any extreme stances that makes you not a very famous sports scientist <laughs> um and not not kind of being on the podcast pushing your kind of extreme stance that that's kind of the way that i see it a little bit um in my field and um yeah i think but 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 when you actually get into the nitty gritty of anybody who kind of has got a bit of a profile around something specific mm. you actually understand that they they do understand all sides of the coins and they kind of do understand the nuance um and they can discuss that as well but um i think you can't get a re- like i think it's probably why this whole training distribution idea or the, the distribution of intensity it comes back to why sort of volume is probably such a key like people talk about training volume being such a key marker for success and I kind of I can see that more so because you were kind of mentioning that you know if you go out and do a zone two ride if you do that for an hour and a half or two hours that's probably not that demanding but if you start doing it for four or five hours it starts getting demanding that like like you say that that's a very different adaptation Mm. that's going to occur um and you can only kind of get those adaptations if you're backing up and backing up and accumulating and accumulating and definitely like from my perspective once i start putting in like consistent i don't get more than 15 hours a week done like i you know if i get up to 16 17 i'm just it's very hard to kind of do my 
day job and stay awake mm. and, and recover and all the other things. So I kind of work between, I guess, 13 to 16 hours on my training weeks. And then I'll have kind of like slightly lower recovery weeks as well. But that just that makes a big difference compared to mm. if I'm just kind of putting backing up like 10, 11, 12 week uh, hour weeks. Mm. Because like you say, you can get into that zone, you know, I'll go out and I'll do a four or five hour ride. And then I've still got a run to do. I've still got to get to swimming. And then the next day I've got to back it up again in order to get that accumulated volume. So I think it's that accumulation of volume, which steers a little bit the intensity, well, quite a lot, the intensity um, and also kind of your whole resulting training distribution. Cause I kind I'm more on the kind of side of, I talk about this with like Andy Jones, Mark Burnley, for example, mm. who wrote the alternate paper um, in that polarized debate um it 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 should be an outcome the the training distribution should be an outcome it's not something that steers your model mm. it should be that you've got a kind of you've got training to do based on the demands of your sport and oh look this led to this type of distribution and mm. that's where all of those norwegian papers and all of the mm-hmm. research has come from it's come from let's look at what the best athletes in the world are doing oh this is what they're doing and then there's like lovely graphs and there's good information and we've got new knowledge and that knowledge has now kind of turned around and saying, well, that's how we should be planning our training. Well, that's not how it ever was. It was always like a retrospective assessment of what's going mm. on. And mm. probably if you retrospectively assess again and in the future in a different sport, a different scenario, you're going to get a different looking graph. So there is no actual research to say that it makes anything better than anything else. It mm. just says that's what those people did at that time. That's it. Well, and I guess if you've got an agenda to um, promote, you can always find an argument to support your case, can't you? You know, there's some confirmation bias there. I, I think going back to Stephen Siler as well, I, I did ask him the question about 80, 20, 90, 10. He said, well, that, that was never supposed to be about percentage of total, ta- total training time. That was about number of sessions. So if you're doing 10 sessions a week, two of them should be high intensity. And of those high intensity sessions, you could do a set of VO2 max intervals, you know, 10 times two minutes, and that's your set. But that's only 20 minutes of accumulated work at that level. Or it might be, you know, again, this is another bit of his research where it was which of these is better, eight times four minutes, four times eight minutes, or, you know, et cetera. So those 30 minutes of threshold type work. But still, that would only total... For most people, that would be a good week's work and it would total 50 minutes of total time spent at that very high intensity. And as you say, in order to do that, the rest of it's got to be low intensity. Um, yeah, and if you're, so doing, I, uh, if you're doing four minutes on, like three minutes off or whatever, like almost a similar amount of that session is low intensity in your yeah. recovery periods. Uh, and with yeah. the warm-up and the warm-down, it probably tips on the, on the side of being... Mm more of that type of work, lower intensity work because of warm-up, cool-down, recovery mm. versus the actual four-by-four-minute intervals that you did. What what I do think that whole debate has, has done is it's caused people to think about the amount of time they spend in that middle zone. You know, they call, some people call it the black hole, the death zone. And I do think that a lot of recreational athletes, they'll spend too much time in that zone. They, they almost feel guilty for doing something in zone two because it doesn't feel like it's actually doing anything. And I know that people like, is it David Bishop that does all the research on mitochondria will say, well, actually, this is the perfect breathing ground for developing mitochondria, for creating all those little energy cells. And then the higher intensity work, just making those 
those mitochondria more efficient. But the bit in the middle, you don't you don't really develop any more mitochondria if you're training at zone three. But what you do do is develop, you know, a lot of um, fatigue, a lot of fatigue, a lot of <laughs> oxidative stress, a lot of what are those little cells that run around creating havoc and destroying things. Um, uh, I can't think of them now. Anyway, the reason why we need to eat spinach and eat all our antioxidants is to mop up all of those. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Gotcha. I've, I've, forgot, yeah. I've forgotten what they're called. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, so I, I, you know, and I, I think the best coaches, and I don't include myself in that, but I do find that if you have an extreme approach, it garners a lot of attention. It polarizes people, but, but actually, then I feel like people end up having to work towards promoting that approach. And and the best coaches um, take what they see in front of them. They they take Dr. Kerry McGauley when she comes along and asks for training, and they look at her strengths and weaknesses, and they look at her lifestyle, and they look at the events she's doing. And then they help her find a program that's going to enable her to tick all of those boxes and stay healthy enough in the long term to achieve her goals. What they don't do is go, ah, oh, yeah, Kerry McGauley, I know that you're a sprint athlete, but and I, and I know that you wanted to do this, but I believe polarised training is the best way. So you're going to do lots of zone one work because that's just going to end up with a very pissed off Kerry McGauley. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I agree with what you said about kind of like, you know, these conversations um have stimulated people to think slightly differently because um like you said there not even not even just recreational athletes probably even panicking like higher level athletes end mm. up in that kind of you know black hole zone i think like i try i don't like talking negatively about that kind of zone because i think it's got its place it's got yeah, its, of course it's got yeah, its place yeah. At, the right, yeah, yeah, yeah. at the right time and yeah. i think you yeah, exactly. Um, and I think one of the reasons, like some of the work that we've done, like one of the reasons that you could, that it's such a dangerous place to end up too often. Um, like I'm a female athlete, obviously, and I do lots of my training with men um, because there's more men who are my sort of level than there are women. So that's just the way it goes. Um, and in order to keep up with them, I might mm. have to go into a zone that is a zone that I potentially shouldn't be in. Um, and on the flip side of that, men like to go harder than they should, especially if there's kind of a woman that's just <laughs> overtaken them. So this, like, so there's different kind of social scenarios as well that lead you to ending up in a zone where you shouldn't end up. So I guess as somebody who coaches themselves and knows exactly what I'm trying to achieve with every single one of my sessions, I have to be like, I'm super careful about who I'm calling, who I'm texting to go and meet up and to do a certain session. Mm -hmm. Cause if it's another girl who's really good and slightly stronger than me, I'm going to want to keep up with that girl and I'm going to be tending to go into a zone that's harder. You know, I'm not going to go out for an easy ride with somebody that I'm kind of quite competitive with or that we just have that kind of competitive relationship in our training. Whereas I've got other people who are kind of slower than me, or they just, they don't really care and they'll do whatever I'm dictating. And like, I can just run the session and they'll tag along whatever. So there's all these different kind of scenarios and people that, that you can kind of, that you can, that can help you to stay in the correct zone. But that's where you've got to be very clear. What am I, what am I doing with this training session? What is the purpose of this? And I'll always sit on a Sunday and plan my week and I try and stick to a pretty similar week. So it's not starting from scratch every week, but just a similar week. Da, 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 da. And then you kind of send out the text messages and make the call like, oh, are you up for this session on this day? Or what day can you do? And then work around your kind of key sessions. But 
yeah, you can't just, I think loads, loads of people, and this is certainly among recreational people, they just kind of go out on a whim with people and it mm. will be, will be. And that's yeah. not how you get to be, That that's maybe how you get to have a nice time and be a recreational athlete, but that's certainly not how you get to be a good athlete that can win races at really any level. Um, you've done some research, haven't you? I know on on females training with males, and so maybe we can come back and talk about that. But that whole thing about people training with groups, um, maybe that are, are a bit better than them. I hear a lot of athletes say, I'm going to swim at that group because they're faster than me. So that'll make me better, won't it? Because I'll have to train harder um, or I'll cycle with the faster group because I'll I'll have to, you know, and I have to, ha- I have to I'm right on the edge hanging on to stay with them, but I'm going to get stronger if I keep that up. That's if you survive that long. Um, and by the way, those things I was thinking of were free radicals that we don't want too yeah. many of. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we need to. I've, we need to. We need, yeah, we need. We need to keep the free radicals under control. Um, and that. So then, that whole that whole point you raised there about what is the intent of this session? What do you want to get out of it? Is it a recovery session? You know, I, I know when people say, yeah, "I've just done a recovery ride, three hours." Well, that's even at an easy pace, three hours turning into a bit of a low level endurance rather than recovery. You know, um, or I'm I'm doing a recovery set and they go to masters and then it's a, you know, it's 10 100s at threshold, but they do it anyway because they've turned up. So they forget about what the intention of the session was. Um, so I like I like that comment you made about sitting down at the beginning of the week and actually identifying what am I trying to get out of each session here? Is it a recovery session? Is it low level endurance? Am I trying to stimulate um, my VO2 max. I'm going to try to build some muscular strength on the bike. Um, what am I really trying to do? And then let's be really disciplined about trying to achieve that, not just getting pulled along by the group, which is, you know, as much as group training is great, if you're not careful, it can also be quite destructive. Um, so there's a fine line to tread, isn't there, really? Yeah. And with swimming, for example, I haven't got a swimming background um, and I'm I'm just a solid, strong swimmer just from training, but I'm not a very good you know, I'm not technically a great swimmer, but, but, but my Tuesday morning is my like key swim session and I've got a little crew and there's kind of three or four, three or four others, um, who are all about the same or like a few of them, they're better than me. So it's like you said, like when you said, Oh, I'm going to go with them because they're quicker and they pull me along. I've got one of those sessions, but it's one a week and it's my key swim session. And then I swim three other times a week and it's usually on my own. And it's usually a technical focus and an endurance focus and a volume. And it might be a few little kind of sprints, but I find it really hard to do threshold or tempo or quality Mm -hmm. swim training on my own more than Mm. the other two. Um, So I use those people and that's turned into like a great group, a really integral part of my training week. And I have the same with a run group who like it's very consistent with what we do we don't go on the track but we go locally seafront or up in the park it's a great group of people there's quicker people than me it's my it's my one a week running interval session and then I've got that for bike so I just think that they're really good tips but but I don't go to those groups like three times a week even if they're offered three times a week or I don't Mm. train with those people you know I'm I'm picky and choosy and like you said there's an intention um and 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 you also said about discipline like i've got that and and it depends what you want to get, it depend but it does depend what you want to get out of it doesn't it like not everyone cares this much about these things mm-hmm. but i think a lot of listeners that you'd have on your show that are trying to be as good as they can be and kind mm-hmm. of get inspiration from that but 
it you know it kind of takes discipline and and hard work but it's not it's still very fun because you're still doing lots of the social parts of it and you're still adapting and developing so that's kind Mm. of always giving you a positive like feedback loop as well um yeah mm. and i think i think with a lot of with a lot of athletes there's an ego part as well isn't there it's like you know if you if if you're going up a hill on a long bike ride you don't want to be the one who's dropping off the back you want to stay with the group especially if you're always seen as one of the strongest riders if you swim in a group you don't want to go to the back of the group today if you're always seen as being the lane leader but but today might be you you the day when you do want to focus on your technical stuff and you can best do that by going at the back but oh no but i'm always leading the lane so or go down a lane lead it go down and lead a, a slower lane oh no but then i'll have to swim off a slower turnaround um so you, you sometimes you have to stack your ego away somewhere don't you and um and and just get on with the with the training let's can i just look back to that research you did then about females training with males what what did you notice there uh, in terms of how that impacted those people who were almost sort of pulled along to train harder than they probably should have been yeah and that was that was actually a byproduct result like that wasn't anything to do with what the study was about it was actually that um one of the block periodization studies that we did with the um so we work quite a lot with um junior development athletes and i think i mentioned to you at the triathlon kind of coaching um workshop that in in sweden there's kind of quite well developed sports sports high schools gymnasiums um and athletes kind of get selected to go into a squad. And so from age 16 to 20, they're in these kind of sports high schools. So, yeah, this was a study that we did with the one of the ski skiing high schools. And then they typically have equal numbers of girls and boys um, in those cohorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that study, I think we had 12 guys and 12 girls. And it was like I said, it was a block, uh, block training uh, intervention study. And we monitored all of their hit sessions and they were very strictly prescribed. Um, But then all of their prescribed low intensity training was just prescribed according to heart rate zones, which they use all the time in their training. Um, But they were left to their own devices and they do most of it. It was it was at the end of the season. They do most of it on skis, some of it on roller skis, some of it running, some of it cycling. Um, So different kind of modes of exercise. Um, but because that's their kind of social time and their social sessions and it's their long, slow volume distance kind of training, they'll do what's fun. And, um, whether they're kind of like boyfriend and girlfriend or whether they're just friends, they'll tend to be sort of mixed sex groups doing those things. And they might go like from hut to hut, or, you know, they might do a ski tour or something that might be a three hour, three or four hour ski session. Um, and then it's, you know, inevitable that they're going to be in different heart rate zones, despite the fact they've been prescribed by their coaches to be at probably, let's say, in an interval of 70 to 75 percent. Well, the girls might be at 77 percent because they're keeping up with the boys who are quicker and stronger, particularly mm-hmm. aged like 17, 18. Uh, and the boys might be at sort of 68, 69 percent. So the boys are sort of at the bottom percent or dropping out the bottom zone. The girls are sort of pushing out the top of the top of the range that they were prescribed and all of a sudden you've got 10 percent difference in what they're working mm-hmm. at so we basically saw and we've got a couple of figures in that paper just showing that the girls are spending more time in higher heart rate zones zones three four and five and the, and the guys are spending more time in zone one and two all due to what they're doing in their low intensity training sessions 
And whether that's purely a social thing that they're training in mixed groups, that could be one explanation. But another explanation is when you've got um, multi-terrain, so when you've got uphills, if you think about running, cycling, which we're more used to, mountain biking or kind of cross-country running or whatever, however slow you go, it's very difficult to keep your heart rate down. And if your maximum maximal aerobic capacity is is lower because you're a woman compared to the men, Mm. Um, if you're kind of moving forwards and moving upwards, however slow you're going, it's very difficult to keep your heart rate mm-hmm. suppressed. So it might just be the nature of having hills in their terrain and in their training that means that the girls are kind of typically at a mm. higher percentage. So I think these are important. That, and and <laughs> the actual most interesting maybe outcome of all of this is that five to 10 years on from working with that cohort of athletes, our women are by far the best in the world (laughs) and the men are lagging behind. So does that mean that the prescribed intensities were too low and that by the girls, or is that just kind of a a coincidence and due to other factors? Um, But that's quite interesting that the girls Mm -hmm. on the whole in Sweden in that, that sport are, are better than the guys. So yeah, maybe it's worthwhile working a little bit harder in that age, or maybe it's like not related at all. But it, it's definitely relevant. You know, there's a lot of triathlon couples. Now, what's mm. happening there? What's happening? Someone, maybe both parties, are not getting the right kind of stimulus. Mm. Well, that brings that's an interesting point you make. And I, I've also seen stuff around when couples that perhaps are living together are following the same diet. Um, and a, an example which might come back to that whole extreme example I mentioned keto earlier is the male part partner says I'm going to follow a keto diet because it's good for losing body fat and you know that's what I want to do and so his female partner says okay we'll follow a keto diet because it's much easier the same people living in the same house eating the same food are doing the same thing but Restricting your carbohydrates may not be the best for a female metabolism, particularly at certain times of the month. Um, I don't know if you've done any research on, you know, when you shouldn't shouldn't as a female uh, restrict your carbohydrates, but but I guess also that causes other problems if the, if if a couple are going to be following the same diet, that that can lead to all sorts of other issues, the same as training intensities. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got quite a lot of female specific projects going on and doing quite a lot of work with female athlete health and menstrual like menstrual health literacy so a lot of my work's a lot more about communication and knowledge uh, and trying to educate coaches and practitioners um in that field because i moved away a little bit from the physiology in that perspective so i haven't actually done personally any studies but i'm kind of up to date on the literature and um there's not great evidence but i definitely think yeah there's definitely a case um for for different types of diets but i think i think more than it being a sex-based issue i think it's an individual issue um Mm -hmm. which you alluded to before as well with some of the studies that you've been on but um so whether it's like i think there's more individual variation probably than there is kind of sex-based variation but i think that's a really important point just in general like i'm somebody that i don't really i don't well i don't like at all i don't like fixed meal times and I struggle with kind of social situation, like family holidays and stuff. I really can't because I live alone because <laughs> uh, it makes my life easier for my training and my eating. <laughs> no, but, no, but, you know, you, 
I, I live alone, so all those things are very easy for me to kind of mm-hmm. manipulate and do do as I want and, and kind of find my own way. Um, but I'm really quite sent. I, I don't like having, you know, having days revolving around breakfast time, lunch time, and tea time. It, it really kind of makes me quite anxious and perturbs me. Whereas, like for lots of people, that's completely normal, especially people with kids. Uh, you know, like there's a lot more. There's there's a big need to have kind of a routine, and um, and you've got to make meals as well, and you've got to make meals kind of economical. Um, so I definitely can see that 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 sort of one person eating a certain that, that you have these scenarios if you're in a family dynamic or in a couple at least um that you sort of end up doing things that suit other people and mm. might not suit your own like physical needs but it, it's definitely that I, I think that would be really difficult for weight management for me for example I, just, I eat purely according to kind of my just needs and my appetite and that's kind of the the, the easiest way for me to manage just how I feel as well. And, and my gut health, like I can kind of feel that. So yeah, it's really, it's, it, that's an, I think that's an interesting topic that another thing that I probably people don't think that much about, or they just kind of suck it up because it is what it is. Mm. But does it have to be like that? All the, There's so much of this is like built around social norms, which mm-hmm. I kind of don't really abide by at all. Like, because I don't see the part, I, 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 yeah, I don't understand why they need to be there. But it's well, I suppose you know you talk about people who have children and having to eat at certain times. Also, if you have a, you probably choose where you work from a lot of the time. But if you have conventional working hours, you probably have breakfast before you go to work, and so when you have to set off for work, dictates when you have your breakfast. If you work somewhere where there are set hours to take your lunch, that's probably going to then impact when you have your lunch meal. And then obviously if you're going to go home and you've got evening training, something I think we both um, share a dislike of, you mentioned it earlier about, um, uh, about something I find it interrupts my sleep patterns terribly. If I do training um, late in the evening. So I just, I just don't. Um, but if you don't, if you, if you have a free, if you have a free slate and you can eat when you like, then, then that's great, isn't it? Um, which seems to be how you um, set up your life. And it's certainly how I set up my life and with my, with my wife that we both work from home in the main. And so we can choose when we want to eat. Um, so I tend to eat breakfast a little bit later, which may, enables me to get my training done and get a bit of work done. And we tend to eat look, dinner earlier um, because I want to have a good period before I go to bed. And I like to go to bed early because that's that, you know, I, I recognize that sleep's really important, but you've just been in Ibiza. I find it terrible when you go to the Mediterranean countries and they don't want to eat until nine o'clock. I'm like, well, I've only got half an hour to bedtime, so I'm not eating. <laughs> yeah, it was funny because I got to my Airbnb and I think I'd landed uh, and I got, I got, I landed, like, I don't know, quarter to 10 or something at night. And maybe it was the following night. But anyway, it, I was like, I was going to bed. It was about 10 o'clock and they were just about, the family were just about to, go and get some sushi and they were having sushi <laughs> for their dinner and it was like after 10 I was like yeah doesn't that doesn't suit me at all but I mean the, Ibiza was very funny from the perspective even the airplane journeys were very funny because you can imagine this kind of completely mm. polarized um kind of yeah scenarios of these kind of crazy age group athletes and then yeah the, the nightclub kind of it was a kind of opening weekend so it was, yeah, very interesting polarized demographics. <laughs> have you have, have you done any research on fasted training at all, Kerry, or um, low carb, high fat, which both of which have um, sort of probably still retain a fair amount of popularity and were were 
talked about quite a lot. Um, I know Dan Plews is a big fan of low carb, high fat. And so, you know, he's, he's done a bit of research, including his own personal studies around his own triathlon training. And of course, because he's very successful as an age group triathlete, one might say, well, that's an approach that works then. Or you might say, well, actually, it just works for Dan. Yeah. And it's where you kind of get that confirmation bias point of view, because, yeah, I mean, because there's one example of one good coach slash athlete who's also a scientist Mm. um, means that this is the way forward. Uh, I think I'm a good athlete, a good coach, a good scientist. I don't do it, but that's not going to be talked about. Do you know what I mean? Like, so just in terms of that confirmation bias, there's going to be other examples of people who don't abide by that or don't live in that way or eat in that way that aren't going to kind of make splashes or headlines. But um, to be honest, again, I haven't done research myself. I teach quite a lot of nutrition, so I teach this topic. um, And I'm aware of the studies that Dan's been doing and also his kind of uh, perspective on this. Um, But then I'm also aware of a lot of the work that Louise Burke does and a lot of the things that she writes about. And she kind of comes from the opposite Mm -hmm. side and thinks that carbohydrate is is extremely important and I guess you know knowing what I know about metabolism and energy systems it makes sense to me to be kind of using carbohydrate but at the same time I'll spend quite a lot of my time doing sessions where I don't feed in terms of I don't Mm -hmm. take I, I don't take on very much nutrition at all I think it's very important to have a well adapted kind of fat metabolism or processes as an endurance athlete um but i also like it's again it's another one of the one or the other um you have to train your kind of enzymes to metabolize fat you have to train your enzymes to metabolize carbohydrate and if you're not using those systems Mm -hmm. in your training then how are you going to train them to adapt so i think that you have to train both um so i haven't been so extreme as to go for like long periods of time or you know, 10 days or two weeks or or months um, using low carb. And then in terms of our athletes, there's no way that any of our athletes would buy into that. Um, but their events are typically quite a bit shorter. Um, mm. So for our traditional skiers who are on the World Cup program, uh, their sprint races are kind of three minutes that they'll repeat four times in a race uh, with, you know, some hours in between. But then and then they'll they'll race up to 50K, which is kind of two hours. So that their window of racing is kind of two to three minutes up to two hours. But it's typically the 10 to 15 traditional distances are kind of half an hour ish. Um, So the studies that I've done with them have been carbohydrate kind of oriented studies, uh, Mm -hmm. Morton studies with sports drinks and sports products that are high carbohydrate. So that's where my research has been, has been more high carbohydrate. But I can see I can see a place for definitely being able to train your body to be efficient at using fat as a fuel. Like that makes perfect sense. Mm. Yeah, I've I've heard some people call that ability to, to be able to switch between the two effectively metabolic flexibility. I don't know if that's just a contrived term or if it really exists. Because um, I've also heard other scientists say, well, your body's pretty good at switching between fat and carbohydrates, but... I guess also from other conversations I've had with you that you do, you know, if you're intending to do a, a reasonably long race at a reasonably high intensity, um, you do need to train your gut. Um, you, you need to train your body to be able to ingest the food, but then you also need to train your guts to be able to absorb that food. Um, 
because I know that's a big problem yeah. with a lot of athletes in long distance races, isn't it? Is is an uncomfortable and sort of nauseous feeling in the gut, which usually has one of two outcomes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you think about like just energy delivery or resynthesis of ATP, I mean, it's quicker with carbohydrate. That that's the mm-hmm. end of it. You need less oxygen to create energy with carbohydrate. So I can't like unless you're kind. I, for Ironman, potentially, I can understand it more. I guess I just haven't gone down that road. Mm. But, yeah, still, I kind of think that you'd kind of want to max out on both systems. Um, but Dan isn't, as far as I know, I mean, he's not completely kind of keto, like extreme one or the other, is he? Does he just believe a little bit more in working mm. more on fat metabolism than has kind of been normally thought? Yeah, I mean, Dan's a smart lad. He's also from Yorkshire, which obviously makes him smart just inherently. Um, but he's and he done was a, lot a good of, triathlete as a, as a youngster. Oh, he, well, he's he was. come from a triathlete <laughs> yes. background. So you, you think, going back to your point earlier about people who can absorb a lot and deal with deal with different stresses probably at a better level than most people, you know, they can tolerate stuff. I remember somebody once saying to me about, um, you know, looking at Dave Scott versus Mark Allen, who had different different approaches to nutrition when they were racing. And this lady who was um, Dr. Peggy Wellington, have you come across her? She used to work with the swimmers, uh, Olympic swimmers quite a lot a few years back. But she said, look, if those two were eating sawdust, they'd probably still perform better than most people because they're just elite athletes. They're just sort of like at a higher level um, than most people. And I guess Dan would fall into that category. Anybody who can race uh, um, in Kona and uh, and do an 8.24, um, is is pretty elite, isn't he? I mean, he's Dan's still proud of yeah. saying the fact that he's the fastest Yorkshireman ever in Kona. No, no, okay. Even Alistair, even know. Alistair, even even Alistair hasn't gone faster than that yet. <laughs> that's quite funny, but yeah, I mean, he has got an elite background, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that's he's kind of gone into a, an age group kind of sport where he potentially could have been, you know, oh well, without a doubt, an elite, yeah, an elite athlete. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, for me, the interesting. The the interesting experiment with Dan is to spend a year on one program, nutritional program and then the next year on an, another nutritional program and ideally blind that so that he's not aware <laughs> um, and give him some incentive to perform really well so that, you know, he's, there's no kind of bias in his performance and, and see what happens because it's all very well arguing this. But I, I, again, there isn't kind of there isn't conclusive data to convince me that no. being on low carbohydrate diet is better than not. And mm. until that comes out, you know, I'm going to struggle to take on board because, you know, you're spending a lot of time and you're, you know, I, I, you could potentially give up a whole season, which is quite a lot of time. And you've invested quite a lot of, mm. you know, your life into that. So I don't know. It's what, but then, yeah, don't know. I haven't got the fastest um, Kona time in Sussex. So <laughs> <laughs> But you know you can't take a case study of one. But you know that 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 no. is kind of the problem. It so. But again, I think he's more intelligent and nuanced. Well, I know he is nuanced than this. It's just yeah. that people pick up on the headlines, of course, and say, "Oh, Dan Plews," and then they see Chelsea Sadara win. It's like, right, let's go full full keto, and that isn't. Mm. I don't think what he's ever said. No, and I, I think he was um, talking about. Um, Iniko Lanos, I think he worked with Iniko and for a while, and some of the athletes like the the Van, the Van Berkel boys have said they prefer a more low carb approach, but Iniko Lanos said it just didn't work for him. 
he completely caved in. He needed carbohydrates. So those are three athletes that are working with Dan. So again, you know, work with what you see in front of you rather than forcing somebody to go down a path that's that's not working for them. Mm, mm. You you make your own nutrition, don't you? I was uh, I was quite interested in that. Um, you talked about Morton, but I know a lot of people saying I really like that, but it's prohibitively expensive, and you, you can there's only limited outlets for it in the UK. So you've started making your own nutrition. Is is anything you can share with everybody about that? I know I know you shared it with the British Triathlon cohort recently. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's it's no secret. Um, the um, yeah, I've done some studies with Morton, so I kind of understand the principles behind it and you know what the gelling agents are supposed to do mm-hmm. um in relation to delivering the carbohydrates so i can sort of i can understand that and i've actually used because i've done studies with them i've been given tons of their products for free and used them and got on really well with them um but since i've moved over here and i haven't done a study with them for a while uh, i've run out of free products quite a long time ago and when you've been given stuff for free you're even more reluctant to pay the insane price tag for them um and i've always struggled with nutrition like i think i am quite efficient so i don't need a great deal um and i almost used to pride myself on that until i realized that actually maybe if i can max out the nutrition as well i could probably perform mm-hmm. quite a bit better um so I've kind of been playing around and I saw there was a tweet from um I think it's a PhD student up at Leeds um might be a postdoc so yeah apologies if I've kind of misquoted but I think he's a runner and he's doing some work with nutrition in a, in any case and also understands this so he'd basically tweeted that he you know has kind of some gut issues or difficulties with nutrition as well and he started making his DIY Morton gels and he shared his recipe so hence it's not a secret because i mean i got it from somebody else anyway or the kind of the idea about it so um basically it's kind of a multi-transportable carbohydrate which just means that you make use of both like glucose and fructose transporters Mm. which most sport products are and they're usually a two to one ratio glucose to fructose so basically i just buy a big package of maltodextrin which is 100 percent glucose off of kind of amazon you're allowed to plug you're allowed to say brands <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't have any i don't have any leanies one way or another amazon yeah, no, is. i mean you can you can get you can get it from anywhere but try and make make sure it's kind of safe in terms of contamination um but yeah just a pure maltodextrin powder um and then this silver spoon jam sugar from tesco's for example anywhere else which is basically just your regular table sugar with pectin which is one of these gelling agents so so um, just to stop just to stop you there that's the important point about getting the jam sugar is the pectin that's in there that's a gelling agent mm, yeah and i mean i don't know if it matters there was nothing on the tweet about it, it matters like how, i don't know how much pectin specifically they put into that but all mm. i know is that having tried it out now it, it seems to work well but in Morton, Morton uses, for example, pectin and alginate. They're the two gelling agents. So you can also buy like a tub of sodium alginate from somewhere like Amazon. Um, and individually, these things, yeah, it might be a tenner for your maltodextrin. It might be a tenner for your sodium alginate, but they're going to last you ages. These things are huge packages um, and your sugar costs a couple of quid um, at the supermarket. Um and you can either go, like I started off going because the recipe on the tweet was kind of 50-50 maltodextrin and sucrose, which is your sugar. And sucrose is 50% glucose, 
fructose, that would give you a three to one ratio. So you can modify that um, so that you'd get more of a two to one ratio by having more of the sugar. But sugar is very, very sweet. And the thing with maltodextrin is that it doesn't really have a, a flavor, mm. a taste. It's very neutral. So the closer you get to that two to one, the more difficult it's going to be to tolerate in terms of the sweetness. But you can play around um, with a little bit more of the, the actual sugar to maltodextrin ratio. And then to this, if you use 50 grams maltodextrin, 50 grams sugar, then the amount of sodium alginate was like a quarter of a teaspoon. So mm. that, that's your kind of start point. That's going to give you 100 grams of sugar, which you can compare. I'm not too sure what a Morton gel is, if it's like 30 grams, potentially. A lot of these things are around 30 to 40, aren't they? These kind of, unless you get a large kind of one. Um, and then you'd obviously put water like these are just powders so then i i use just warm water i boil the kettle and i use warm water to kind of dissolve it as much as possible top it up with cold water then you need to sort of use a hand whizzer handheld mm -hmm. like blender of some sort to kind of get all the lumps and stuff out so it's basically just this maltodextrin sugar sodium alginate water blend it together and you can make it um as fluid or as concentrated as as you want depending on how you kind of run your nutrition um in ibiza i made it really 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 concentrated and put it in a like a water bottle but enough that i could you know squeeze it out um and then i had water in my other bottle so that i could like swirl that down and put it over my head i like to have one water so that i can get it over my body like you don't want to be putting a sport drink all over your body <laughs> no. to cool you down so it's kind of equivalent to people who just empty sachets and sachets of gels into their water bottle mm. and maybe dilute it a little bit. Um, and you can get hundreds of grams into, into that. I mean, this thing was really heavy. This water bottle was pretty heavy because it's so dense. And then I just made like for the run, I made, I put them into those kind of soft flasks that you can just carry. Mm. Um, and yeah, I ended up chucking one uh, because they were kind of heavy and awkward. Um, so it's a little bit of a kind of playing around thing, yeah, to kind of store them on your body or on your bike. Can you explain to the listeners why a hydrogel and the importance of that, please? Um, because I think that's a key point here. I know I've heard a lot of people say Morton works really well for them, and that's a hydrogel. So if you can expand, yeah. that would be great. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And it is one of the few things that's worked really well for me as well. So I'll, I'll kind of just add to that pool of people that have said that it's worked well for them because I've heard that a lot as well, anecdotic, anecdotally. But basically, this, these, this, these gelling agents, which I said, the pectin and the alginate, because um, I've had a few kind of questions and confusion about a gel versus kind of a sport drink product. So this does not make it a gel as we know it in a little packet of gel. It's the gelling agent which encapsulates the basically, I mean, it's kind of boring biochemistry, but the gelling agents that like encapsulate the carbohydrate and kind of protect it as it goes through your intestine. And that's supposed to increase um, the uptake across the gut into the bloodstream for delivery of the carbohydrate um, to your muscles where you actually need it or through kind of the bloodstream. Um, so it's kind of like this encapsulation of the gelling agents encapsulating the carbohydrate that seems to have a beneficial or useful effect 
on that gastrointestinal distress and not mm. making you feel having like that kind of those kind of tummy ache mm. issues that you would normally have. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the kind of argument from Morton as well as a product. Um, mm. And I think that's what they've got a patent on is the the kind of construction of using these gelling agents with carbohydrate um, units or molecules. So I don't think anybody else is maybe allowed to, I could be wrong there, but I've got a feeling that that's what they've painted and that other companies aren't allowed to replicate. But mm. I mean, you could do it in your own kitchen as far as I'm aware. We'll have to think of uh, Kerry gels. Doctor, Doctor, yeah. you can be sort of like you with with your glasses on there, Kerry. You can, you can yeah. be, a, you know, a, a, a mad professor in the kitchen bubbling yeah. away. You need, you need, you need a white coat. You need a white coat, I think, for the little social media photograph, and then Doctor Kerry's Doctor Kerry's amazing gels, gel kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we wrap you, up, Kerry, just a caveat: if you if you are trying that at home, like think, like pause and write down what I just said there, and and kind of like don't go mad or reach out to me or text or something, but um, or like Twitter or something. But yeah, do, like be careful. I mean, understand what you're doing basically mm, before you and, do it, and try it in training. Don't just make it up tonight <laughs> yeah. before your race, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, crucial. Before we wrap up. Um, what I'd like to do is get some of this amazing research knowledge and um, learnings that you've had with your elite athletes and your own personal experiences as a as a very accomplished recreational athlete and try to give our listeners some really usable guidelines, okay, for things that they might want to do. So let's let's talk about the um, sort of training intensity distribution. If if I can summarize what you have, have sort of said throughout this, I think um, find an approach that works for you. Polarized is great, but don't be stuck to that um, and try and spread some intensity across the various other zones. Have I sort of got that right? Yeah. Like I would say, even for myself, like I don't, I, I couldn't tell you what my intensity distribution is. I just know that I need to do predominantly low intensity, some threshold and some interval sessions per week across the disciplines. That's the other important thing. Make sure that, you know, you're not just doing your hit stuff in one discipline all the time. I think that's quite important. Okay. Um, With nutrition, I think what you've said is um, various approaches work, but you need to find out what works for you and it requires testing. And once you've got to a certain level of fitness or a certain level of uh, tolerance to some things, then things might not work as well. And you might try, you might need to try and find something else. Yeah. And I think don't underestimate how much you can get in and how much of an impact that's going to have on race day as well. Like you really do have to kind of keep getting that nutrition in, in my opinion, on race day. I mean, what you do around that and what you do to get yourself to that day Obviously, like you just said, you need to train it, you need to practice it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think like it's a constant kind of intake of fuel on a longer distance event in any case, like a half Ironman upwards. Mm. Um, but that's very specific to race day. Yeah, what about on a what about on a regular basis? Then just eat a balanced diet. Uh, balanced of, diet of, massively, yeah. Balanced diet, real food, um, and stick to some sensible meal times. Yeah, exactly. And then you know. 
a few treats here and there, but everyone knows that, you know, crisps and chocolate and cakes and biscuits are, are not particularly good for you and that vegetables and, you know, fibres are. So it's just like you said, it's just that classic. And it, it's funny because I teach quite a lot of nutrition, like I said, and every time after I've had like a module, like a course in nutrition, my just my shopping improves and my eating mm. improves because I just remind myself what vitamins and minerals are in all these different foods, how much protein we should be taking on and how like protein particularly you have to think about and make an effort. I think typically mm. it's more of an effort to get the protein in. It's very easy to fill up on carbohydrates. Um, so that's a thing to be aware of, especially if like weight management is a thing for you, just really like you can really up the protein and just drop down on the kind of the carbohydrate and the fat as well, because it's mm. filling and, usually nutritious but it does need to be high quality proteins and again yeah, that's you, a bit more difficult when you're a veggie vegetarian you, yeah you you mentioned earlier about planning out your weekly training i think it's what, what's also really important is to plan out your weekly meals um it's something that i teach as i'm a, i'm not a nutritionist but i'm a nutrition coach and that's really about uh, that's really more around helping people find strategies to to get the right food in um 100 and i can i can say that when like I don't plan my meals, but what I do, I have a major difference if I do a weekly kind of reasonably large shop and just my raw ingredient. Like I don't really do many recipes and stuff, but I'll just get a lot of fish, a lot of veggies, a lot of salad. Think about my where my carbs coming from. I'll just get rice, pasta, potatoes. Mm. And when I've got a fridge full like that, my God, my eating is so much better mm. than if you've just let your fridge run down. You don't do that shop for days and days and then you're just grabbing stuff on the go and it's usually not very good stuff yeah well um john berardi professor john berardi who runs precision nutrition he asked berardi's law he said if you've got something that you know you shouldn't really be eating much of in your house the chances are you're going to eat it 100 percent. so just don't buy it and and the problem there is if you come to want to to make a meal after you've trained and you haven't got that stuff then you're going to find the easiest replacement which is usually at the end of a phone and arrives in a car in a bag those things are never usually healthy 100 percent, yeah and i'm a chocoholic that's my weakness like and it's a real weakness so now i've got to the point especially like now it's into race season i want to race well i buy a 70 percent lint per week and i'm allowed two squares a day like this is the <laughs> rock and roll lifestyle i lead uh, but that's just my way of rationing it's my way of having chocolate but having two squares a day of something that's quite uh, high high like quite dark um and that that keeps it at bay like that's all that that does the job kind of thing so you just need to find your little tricks yeah i'm a chocoholic as well kerry um and i've tried that i i know if you go for 70 or 80 percent chocolate it's i can't really do more than two squares anyway i don't need a lot of discipline to stick to that 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 bar of chocolate will stay in the fridge if i buy a toblerone uh in in uh, in reference to the mountain behind me um yeah it won't it won't stay there more than 24 hours that's for sure no. Um, uh, there's always a little bit of chatter about altitude. A lot of a lot of recreational athletes don't get opportunity really to go to altitude um, very often. Uh, it's quite expensive, a bit time consuming. Um, there is the opportunity now to either buy an altitude tent or rent one, or to go to these little centres where you can wear these altitude masks. Um, any thoughts on whether altitude is beneficial for recreational age group athletes at all? And actually, in your point, uh, 
some opinion on whether these masks really work or whether they're just inducing hypoxic training, uh, which is a different kind of stimulus, isn't it, to living at altitude? Yeah. Um, I think it's likely to work for recreational athletes in a similar way. Well, I mean, it does in a similar way as it works for kind of higher level athletes. So I don't think that that's kind of necessarily a question as to whether it would work in that population because it's got the same kind of fundamental physiology underpinning like the process of it the thing is is that again it the very individualized responses as to people mm. that do or don't get on with it mm. um so within our squads we'll have actually members of the olympic teams that that don't go on altitude camp because they don't get on with it uh, and that might be both the altitude itself or the whole kind of process of being away from home especially if they've got family and young kids mm. for a certain amount of time because you typically need to be there for more than two weeks mm. and that's where I can't get my head around these kind of short-term into I, I can't really see the point of a you know sp sporadic altitude impulses I, ca I can't I don't think there's I haven't read any kind of evidence that that would be useful so typically you need to go for a long period of time and you need to go up quite high um, so one of our studies that we did with one of my PhD students, like I think I mentioned at the beginning, we were up in font in, in the Pyrenees where lots of athletes go, triathletes, font um, for like three weeks per squad. So each squad was there for three weeks. So we were there for a long time. Um, but that's only at 1800. We didn't actually, a lot of physiological adaptations that you would expect to see in terms of resting heart rates, oxygen saturation, we didn't see any effect whatsoever on these athletes. Now, these are really, really well-trained athletes, about as well-trained as you can be um, aerobically and endurance-wise, but they don't live at altitude. Like where we live in Sweden is kind of two, 300 meters. And Sweden's a very lowland country. There is no altitude in Sweden or really in Scandinavia, some parts of Norway there is. But but what I mean is you might expect a lack of adapt a lack of kind of response from athletes that are going up to this kind of level more often, that are racing at these kind of heights more often. But so the point is, is that lots of the studies are done on well over 2,000 meters. Mm -hmm. Most athletes don't go on camp to well over 2,000 meters. So you'd have to do yourself a little case study, really, because the mm. other thing with altitude that's very, very difficult is the timing of coming back down and optimizing or maximizing mm. those gains. It's a fuck it. That is a, like hit and miss. That's a lottery. Um, so I think if you're performing up at altitude, it's definitely beneficial to acclimatize to the altitude. If you're trying to use altitude to get gains for sea level performance, that's very, very difficult to sort of get mm -hmm. the most out of. And I think you need to like, you need to do monitoring and you need to be doing testing and you need to kind of like make sure you've got some, we had all these kind of stuff in our, in our, in our protocols that we would do kind of standardized mini, mini tests quite frequently just to be able to track everything that was going on in every single individual. Um, and the main thing that happened across the board that was problematic and it was the only thing that we could really have an impact on was that they got very dehydrated and we just mm. managed to like have an intervention and, and and rectify that problem. But other than that, really individual responses and not very extreme responses to that level of altitude. 
So yeah. I can't see really the benefits, like I said, of these short term miniature mm. home okay. kind of based interventions. But I know that people, you know, are sleeping in, in their tents and so on. There's probably at least that's a kind of fixed amount of that. If you can get kind of eight hours in that regularly, mm. if that's going to affect your sweet sleep quality um, negatively, then, you know, you've got another probably bigger problem on your hands. Yeah. And of course, if you if you're going to you're going out to stay in uh, somewhere at altitude and train there, the amount of high intensity training is very very low, isn't it? It's you know it's quite debilitating and hard work to to do any sort of intensity. So I know some of the elite triathletes will go out there. It's almost like a a bit of a blocker in the middle of their season to stop them overtraining, and because they have to do low intensity training, and they go down the valley to do that, and they just come back up there and spend all the time. So it's quite well planned. Um, I have I have heard from a number of people that training in the, the heat. Um, and training in heat chambers can provide similar adaptations in terms of increased blood plasma and therefore oxygen carrying capacity in the blood that altitude provokes without obviously all the travel. Have you done much on that? And do you have any opinion? I haven't done much on that. Um, I guess because we're we're cold weather sport, we just don't use heat adaptation that much um, with our athletes. But that said, like we've got a heat chamber, we've got well, we've got an environmental chamber that has got very hot, very cold, very high um and sea level so we could do all of that stuff but yeah i'm aware of those papers they've come out that you know that kind of concept probably has been in the last five five or so years in in the way that you just said like using heat as a tool rather than just using heat as an acclimatization process for Mm -hmm. um events in the heat so yeah i can't really add too much besides i've seen some of those preliminary papers it's not being used across the board with um, athletes that are not performing in the heat. So it's not something that like our coaches or that we're like using for that purpose, because I guess the thing is you've got to take then that training time or that steep. A lot of things are steeped in tradition, aren't they? Or kind of like um, Mm. regularity and what's normally being done. So it it would have to be quite convincing Mm. for our coaches and athletes to want to ch- change what they've kind of known and done for several decades. Yeah. But that's I mean, not I've, to say that it's not worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done some heat chamber training when we were specifically preparing to go and do marathon de Sable and also in the lead up to going to Hawaii to race. And the things I found there were, you know, you spend two hours in the heat chamber. Again, it's quite debilitating. You get quite dehydrated and I found myself quite tired. So it does have an impact on, um, subsequent training to be done and i think that's that's important to plan around as well as if you're going to do these things think about the whole training program not just these little interventions um because there's there's a wider reaching impact and um yeah 100 yeah i I would just agree with that because you know especially as an age group you're you're limited with what you can fit in and when you can fit things in you know you get to the point of it being the season now is that Mm. when you really want to be taking that time up because I completely agree like both altitude and heat it, it's really draining and it mm. really affects like your recovery and also your motivation like there's a lot of psychological impact on that so I mean I think I would be someone that would really kind of promote it I think or encourage it or try to use it if you're going to race in those conditions and really think twice as to why you're going to do it if you're just doing it for the physiological kind of adaptation. Cause I was just thinking when I was up at altitude with those training camps study, I was training quite a lot with those athletes myself as well um, as doing my 
the kind of work that we were doing, I was just going out on sessions with them. And I had St. Moritz um, triathlon race in the middle of that camp. Like I went down the mm. mountain and over to Switzerland and did St. Moritz. And I mean, that helped me massively. The fact that I'd been there for three weeks and felt completely acclimatized because that's a really weird feeling in the water swimming at high altitude. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, think I didn't remember or think or consider to adjust my breathing rate and if you've got the same stroke rate and the same breathing rate you're getting a lot less oxygen in mm. and uh, I came up out the water and it was, it was a half Ironman so it was like 2k swim you know I was completely like out of it and people were all over it was like quite hilarious like people were all over the place I, I had a friend who went to train in Boulder which well, a mile up but you live there you know, it's, you're not on the mountain. You're just living at um, a, a, an elevated altitude. And he said the first couple of weeks of swimming, um, he had to go in a, a slower lane and he was only doing 50s because he was just out of breath trying to, like you said, with the same stroke cadence and the same breathing pattern, he just got out of breath. And then I remember going to Alpe d'Huez and doing, um, uh, actually, it was the um, it was the Marmot bike sportive but we stayed there so i went swimming one afternoon in the in the pool there i love i love that pool what a great it's, pool! It's, it is a great pool it is a great pool beware if you're english because they don't like you wearing speedos do they you, know, you have to wear speedos they don't they're not you're not allowed to wear swim shorts in there and they're very particular and you have to wear, but, a, cap. You have you have to wear, wear a, cap. a cap but mm. just the just the experience of swimming at altitude trying to do what you normally do and feeling like you, you're a complete novice because you're not out of breath and you're hanging onto mm. the end of the pool and um, yeah, I guess yeah. if you spent a few weeks up there, you, you, you'd notice a difference. Um, it seems, you know, a lot of the stuff we've covered are things that folks latch onto because they hear about the elites. And you mentioned something, um, you, you touched on it a bit early, and you mentioned something when, when you did that workshop for us at British Triathlon, is this notion that um, recreational or age group athletes trying to follow what the pros do is just absurd because... Uh, like you mentioned at the beginning, elite athletes are just completely different people. They're they're able to devote their whole life to it. It's all built around the training and performance. And the reason they're elites is because they're different. Um, they're different species from the rest of us in terms of their genetic makeup. So um, it's okay to read about these things and be interested in them, but be careful about applying it in in a literal sense to yourself because the the impact might not be the same. And actually. If you're just consistent with your training over a, a long period of time, you probably get just about the same results. Yeah, like like they're amazing role models, aren't they? They're inspirational. Like we love tri like you're a triathlon fan, I'm a triathlon fan. Um, I love for I'm not a massive social media person, but you know, bits and pieces I am. I listen to podcasts with with these athletes. You get great you can get great ideas, great inspiration. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can take on board some of the things that they're that they're saying and doing. Um, you just, I just think everything needs to be taken with a pinch of salt and taken in moderation. Um, but at the same time, you can still be, you know, fully committed and very, mm -hmm. you can have very high, um, like far high goals. Like you can still want to win, but that's the beauty of triathlon and having age group events, isn't it? You can still go out and try and win world championships mm -hmm. or British championships or whatever it is, whatever age you are like you said, the consistency is key, but you can also train really hard and a lot um, if your life kind of supports that. Mm. Um, but 
it's so multifaceted, isn't it? Performance. I think that's that's the thing. So while consistency is the most important thing and getting up to some sort of volume is probably pretty important as well. Like it's so multifaceted with all the things that we've talked about, with the eating, with the sleep, with the illnesses, with the recovery, um, with even the performance strategies and how you put together a race on race day. It, just even like your mental state, you, I, I see just madness going on. Mm. And who, what was it like? I was listening, you know, you listen to some of the pros uh, and you kind of think, are you for real? Like I'm doing a better job. Who, who was it? It was, it was on the long distance race. So the same day that I raced, Joe Skipper was obviously there, but the other, um, there was another British guy who's not oh, Tom, Tom uh, Bishop. He did, he did pretty well. No, James, J- no, Tom raced the day before the PTO race. Uh, I can't remember it, but someone, I think I was listening to, um, Mark Livesey cause he was out there doing some recording and he was like, yeah. And I chatted to him on race day and he was having a, a slice of pizza for his breakfast down at the beach before the race or something. I was like, <laughs> but you know, maybe that is a tried and tested kind of strategy. Maybe that is the be- best breakfast for him, but you you kind of just got the vibe that, you know, he just found whatever was kind of hanging around in the fridge and that's what he <laughs> grabbed like for race day. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was quite funny, but um, yeah, I just think, I just think you can still, you can, you can analyze all of these things and you can have a really like, focus training program but your focus training program needs to take into account all of these mm. factors the social factor the fun factor the making sure that you've got physical physical adaptations factor all of these like things that you're constantly mentioning um, and that's not easy to do like it's not easy to do and it requires quite a lot of like time effort organization brain power know-how um mm. But that is where kind of co- coaches come in, I suppose, and like make a difference. That's what we try to do. We mm. we, we we take we take the research and the uh, knowledge from you, Kerry, and we try to translate it into easily um, understandable pieces of information that people can apply in the real world and in their own life, and find the solution that works for them. Um, and I think if if there's one th- again one thing that we kept coming back to, uh, some of it was obvious, some of it wasn't, is. Um, extreme approaches probably don't work in the long term for the majority of people. So, you know, you, it's a, what grandma used to say, isn't it? Everything in moderation. But I think actually, if we did do everything in moderation with a sprinkling of extreme stuff from time to time, probably can't go wrong, but just don't be too extreme all the time. Yeah. And just extreme moderation, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I love um... it. That might be the t- that might that might just have made its way to the title for next week's podcast. There you go. Okay, well, extreme moderation, as preached by Dr. Kerry McGorley. Yeah, moderation in ex- in the extreme. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking, like some some scenarios w- require an extreme kickstart, don't they? Somebody who's never mm-hmm. really done it, who's excessively overweight, like you know, all these kind of scenarios mm-hmm. that someone really needs to do. But that's extreme relative to the starting point. But if you're if you've been in the game for a long time, then probably extremes aren't gonna only moderate mm. extreme moderation is gonna work. Kerry, I was just about to start saying to you it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I, I feel that I'm gonna have to invite you back to just talk about some of these other things in more detail. But for now, thank you very much for being here. I've really appreciated your time and knowledge today. No problem. Thanks very much for having me on. You're most welcome. Thank you again to Kerry for joining me as a guest on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed her insights as much as I did. And you'll find links to a lot of the stuff we talked about in the show notes below. To make sure you don't miss any one of my episodes in the future, 
please go along to iTunes, search for High Performance Human and Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. And while you're there and if you have the time, I'd really, really appreciate it if you can leave us a review on our podcasts. That really helps to boost the listenership of this broadcast. But if you'd like something a little simpler to do, why not just tell your friends about it? If every one of our listeners, of which we have more than 2,000 a month, shared with one of their friends, we could boost the listenership and share more of these insights with a lot more people. So, again, thank you in advance if you can do that for me. Now, in the introduction to this episode, I mentioned that we've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth, exclusive comments and programs so we don't need to have any of those pesky paid ads on the show. And it's my goal to ensure that every single one of our SWAT members get much more than the price of the subscription back from us. And so that membership benefits include access to a growing library of training plans for a whole range of endurance events, probably too numerous to mention here. All I will say is, if you've got an endurance event and you'd like a plan for it, if it's not there already, we can create it for you. Um, We also have some more specific programs that will help you boost your strength, your mobility, um, improve your FTP for the bike or your uh, threshold running pace. And we offer monthly exclusive workshops to SWAT members and free access to educational workshops on topics such as nutrition, sleep, strength and many more. We also have a growing range of partner products that we can get discounts on that are probably better than you can get anywhere else. And these are products I've already been using myself and where the people who provide them and make them are actually people I really enjoy working with and that's why I want them to promote to you. Now, if you'd like to learn more about these member benefits and get access to them, you can find more details on my website, simonmore.co.uk. Just click on the Work With Me button. All right, that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.